Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people and Boon people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land we broadcast from. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal people listening in today. My name is Dallas Say, and you're listening to Say the Podcast. On this show, I hope to highlight the depth and diversity of the human experience. Grief and loss, trauma, and managing one's mental well-being are all part of that. And they're a part of AJ's story. AJ and I have been friends since middle school. In 2017, she first told me about her relationship with Sam. They were a happy couple in love, fulfilling their dreams and starting their life together. By the end of that year, AJ graduated with a Master of Speech Therapy in Brisbane and Sam had a stable career as an engineer in Melbourne. Then the unthinkable happened. Before we go further, I'd like to inform listeners that this story will include discussions about near-death experiences, grief, trauma, anxiety, and depression. My story takes place on January 4, 2018. I was back home in Sri Lanka for the holidays to spend time with my family after graduating with a master's in speech therapy just three weeks earlier. During this time, I was in a serious relationship with my boyfriend, Sam, who was also visiting Sri Lanka for the holidays. We were at a great place in our relationship and we had begun talking about our plans for the future together now that I had finished uni. On that day, I was spending time with Sam. We took a two-hour drive down south to the town of Hikkadua to spend the day at the beach. We were having a great time, splashing and jumping up and down in the water in a relatively shallow area. Then, without much warning, the waves got stronger and stronger before pulling us in. To keep the story brief, we got dragged further and further away from the shore. I was holding on to Sam's hand for what seemed like forever. Sam was the stronger swimmer out of the two of us, but we were both struggling. Eventually, I gave into the power of the current. I stopped fighting it and let it toss me around. I felt like a paper plane in a washing machine. Each time I heard the wave approaching from behind, I would take a deep breath in a rush to fill my lungs. I would squeeze my mouth shut to stop myself from opening it as the force of the wave hit me from behind and then engulfed me. I, when I was pushed under, I would squim my eyes, not fully opening them in fear of my contact lenses slipping off. Underneath the water, I extended my neck towards the surface above. I kicked my legs as hard as I could once the water had released its grip on me. When I broke to the surface, I gasped for fresh air and then made sure my eyes always found the shore. Every time a wave hit, I repeated this process. I don't know how long this went on for. As cliche as this is going to sound, time appeared to slow down. At one point, a strong wave, the strongest one by far, hit us 
and I lost my iron grip on Sam's hand. Once we were separated, he went out of my field of vision as I refused to divert my eyes from the shoreline each time I resurfaced. Sam was a good swimmer and a rower. I was not worried for him because he knew what to do. I knew that he was somewhere behind me on my left side because I heard his tired voice as he called out for help. I knew no one would hear us or see us so far out in the water. My body got more and more tired as I struggled to keep my head above the surface. The water level was just below my ears. I kept looking up at the sky, the blue, cloudless sky. It felt bright and warm. A lot of thoughts crossed my mind. I felt like a sheep approaching the slaughterhouse, and in my resignation, I thought, so this is how I'm going to die. Just as I was about to give up, out of nowhere, the waves calmed down. I couldn't hear any waves approaching from behind, just the soft lapping of the water around me. This was my chance. So with all the strength in me, I started swimming slowly to the shore. And after what seemed like forever, I could feel my toes brush the sand below the water. When AJ was finally waist deep, she started yelling for help. That was when people realized what was happening. She felt relieved and hopeful knowing that if she had made it ashore, Sam must be close behind. AJ saw people jump into the water to get Sam. She was seated in a chair in the shade for an agonizingly long time. Sam was then brought ashore unconscious, and CPR was delivered by the surrounding people. At this point, AJ was scared. She was crying and praying, but still very hopeful. She knew Sam was strong and that he would wake up. But when paramedics arrived and took over, Sam was still unconscious. When they took him away in the ambulance, AJ followed them in a taxi. She had gathered his wallet and clothes and brought them along with her. He would need to get dressed when he woke up, after all. When AJ was led into the ER, what she saw diminished her hope. There was a team of four doctors and too many nurses to count. Sam was attached to machines. His heart rate was only due to the chest compressions. AJ was crumbling on the inside. Somewhere between the chest compressions and the nurse asking her for Sam's ID, she called her mother and told her to come over with Sam's parents right away. The full force of what was about to happen was about to hit her. All it took was for the lead doctor to say, he has very little chance of survival. He probably died in the sea. Slowly, the medical staff stepped away and the curtains around Sam's bed were drawn. AJ sat down on a plastic chair a few feet away from Sam's bed, while the doctor explained the procedures they did on him. She asked the doctor to wait till Sam's family arrived. AJ says waiting two and a half hours at the ER was the loneliest time of her life. She waited in silence, wearing the damp clothes she had hastily thrown over her bathing suit.
AJ and I spoke on the phone a few days after Sam's funeral. She told me about what had happened. I couldn't imagine how hard those days must have been. But AJ shares what those days were like. Most of last year, the intensity of my emotions were raw, as you can imagine. I felt pain as though I had stones in my heart. I felt sadness because of my grief over the loss of Sam as well as the loss of my self-identity. By this, I mean I didn't recognize the person staring back when I looked in the mirror. I felt like the girl that came out of the water had a blank face. No eyes, no nose, no mouth, no eyebrows. Her features and fingerprints were washed away by the ocean, but her memories remained. I felt very lost. I felt hopeless. It was hell. I just didn't understand what happened or why it happened. One thing I focused on was getting out of bed each day and brushing my teeth, washing my face, and changing out of my pajamas. I made myself do that every day, even if I went straight back to bed after that routine. I felt very numb, and it was terrifying. I thought I was going crazy because I couldn't feel anything, even though I was aware of what was happening around me. I remember not knowing how to smile for the first few days. It's been over a year since then. I checked in with AJ about how she is doing these days. I am in a better place than I was one year and four months ago. Today, I still feel the same emotions, but the intensity is a little less. I have strategies in place that will help me find my footing and stay grounded if I should stumble or spiral. I am much more knowledgeable about the journey of mental health as a process. It's like when Humpty Dumpty falls over the wall. You can't put him back together to look exactly how he was before. I know I am not the same person I was before the accident. I also know that I cannot go back and become that person I used to be. What I am working on is to be able to manage my grief and trauma and to come to a place where I am content with who I am. Despite the good days and the hard days, I've been told by many people that I have come a long way. I feel it too. AJ has been on this journey for a while. I can honestly say that she's incredibly resilient and strong. She really has come a long way, fighting through it all till this day. So I asked AJ what helped her get through last year. I have been blessed with loving parents who have supported me. I moved to Sydney about one and a half months after the accident and stayed with my mom's friend's family. I lived with them for seven months until I was ready to move out. They were very kind and made sure I felt safe. During this time, I found a psychologist who specialized in working with people who experience trauma. I still attend sessions with her, and it's so comforting to know from a professional that what I was experiencing after the accident was normal. She was the first person to give me hope. I spoke to my close friends, including you. I eventually started lessons on martial arts, swimming, and traditional Sri Lankan dancing. 
I found that my longtime passion for art helped me feel closer to Sam because I used to call him my double rainbow guy for bringing the color into my life. Most of my paintings are dedicated to him. Another reason I spend so much time on my art is because every time I paint, I think of it as a fuck you gesture to the ocean. It took so, so much from me that day and brought the world crashing down on me, but not my creativity. Each time I mix my paints, hold a brush, visit an art gallery, restock my supplies, or even make a mistake while painting, all of that couldn't be taken away. It's my shield and I will not let it go. I also found that writing was the most effective way for me to express what was going through my mind when I didn't want to speak out loud or when I was so overwhelmed with emotions. When I put pen to paper, I can journal everything in my head. The hardest part is reading it out loud. That's when the tears come. I can read out loud in therapy or to my close friends because they create a safe space. Physical activity like martial arts, swimming, kickboxing, and gym has become an integral part of my life. Before the accident, I never set foot in the gym, but now I like the feeling of my heart racing, sweat dripping, and the tension in my muscles. It makes me feel alive and gives me a sense of control. If the rest of my day is hard and things happen that are out of my control, I can always rely on a good workout. I also kept telling myself to focus on the little things, the baby steps, like the new joint lock I learned in martial arts, the new painting technique I'm trialing, making a new friend at the gym, or opening my notebooks from uni. I slowly built up on top of these things. Recently, I started taking driving lessons and I completed the first draft of my resume. I feel proud of myself because these are things that I thought I could never accomplish last year. But I did, and I did it at my own pace. Following this, I asked AJ what has been the hardest thing for her since then. What were some of the challenges she faced since the accident? One of the effects of trauma is that it affects the way your brain thinks. So as a result, I have developed erroneous thinking patterns. For example, I'm a very responsible person in general. I'm not a fan of taking risks and I prefer to play it safe. I am the oldest in my family and I've helped my mom raise three younger siblings even before I was a teenager. So after the accident, I felt responsible for Sam's death because I wasn't strong enough to save him. I blamed myself that as a safety-minded and responsible person, I should have done a risk assessment and never gone into the water with him. I strongly felt I should have protected him. It took me months to open my mind to the fact that what happened was something that no one could control. No man is greater than the power of the ocean. It's a powerful force of nature. The next biggest challenge is reconnecting with my passion to be a speech therapist. This is a more obvious challenge because it's not something internal like self-blame. My erroneous thinking has made me think, because I couldn't help Sam, I therefore cannot help my patients as a speech therapist. In my heart, this makes no sense, but it's my mind that needs convincing. Other challenges include managing my PTSD symptoms, mainly hypervigilance, mild anxiety, and the feeling of impending doom. 
these symptoms are heightened in scenarios of high risk. For example, when I'm having a driving lesson, I am thinking, oh my god, I'm going to kill someone, or I might get myself and my instructor killed. Another example is whenever I move from the platform to get into the train, I always hold on to the side rail because I am terrified of falling into the gap between the train and the platform. As for the challenges of dealing with grief, I still don't have closure and I have not made peace with Sam's death. At the time of the accident, I had just met Sam's family and I hadn't been introduced to his friends. This is because we had only been together for about five and a half months. So after the funeral, I was on my own. In our culture, the title of girlfriend doesn't mean much. In fact, I lied and told the nurse I was Sam's fiance in order to get into the ER. So I was disconnected from people who had known Sam longer than I had. I didn't have people I could sit down with and talk about Sam over a cup of tea. Grieving in isolation is very painful and lonely. We've talked about how the incident affected AJ, but how has this affected her friends and family? It was very hard for my parents. I know my mother silently blamed herself for letting me go to Hikadua as it was a long drive away. I know my parents cried in private while I wasn't around. I am the only daughter out of four children. They almost lost me, and they are so grateful to God that there wasn't a second funeral. This incident was kept within my family, and we didn't share it with extended relations. My parents have been very supportive and patient. But now that it has been over a year, there seems to be hints suggesting that I need to move on with my life and rebuild it. Mental health is a topic that is rarely discussed in our culture. It is even more rare for older generations to discuss it. So I have taken it upon myself to educate my parents. And over time, they became more understanding about how important it was to give me some space so that I don't feel backed into a corner or pressured to do things I am not ready to face. I think they are sometimes sad to see the person who was once so passionate, kind-hearted, smart, confident, and friendly become so scarred. Despite this, they always have faith in me. They always tell me this. My friends have seen that I have socially isolated myself, so they call me, text me, and make plans to spend time with me. They have faith in me too. I prefer to talk to them about Sam and about my trauma rather than my parents. I am very grateful that they are still a part of my life despite the fact that I have grown distant. And what would AJ say to someone who has been through a similar experience? There is so much I want to say, but each one of us is different. We have all walked different paths. Our underlying experiences of grief and trauma are similar, but unique. Our reactions to these terrible experiences will therefore be different. The place we are in our journey of recovery is different. So I would like to share a quote which I came across a month ago by Bianca Sparacino. I think it's brave. 
I think it's brave that you get up in the morning when your heart aches and life is messy and you do not feel like being soft for the world. I think it's brave that you continue to love and express and open your soul despite the way you were treated in the past. I think it's brave that you keep going, that you keep believing in something more, something bigger, even when you may not know what you're hoping for. I think it's brave that you fight. I think it's brave that you choose every single day to move forward because that is what makes you strong. That is what makes you strong. Grief, trauma, anxiety, and depression are very real experiences. Here are some support services for those who may be seeking it. Griefline is Australia's only dedicated grief helpline service that provides counseling support services free of charge to individuals and families who are experiencing grief and loss. Their number is 1-300-845-745 and they are available from midday to 3 a.m. seven days a week. Beyond Blue is a national organization that has a range of information and resources on depression and anxiety. Resources and information about their programs are available on their website at beyondblue.org.au or you can contact their support service on 1-300-22-4636 and it's toll free. Their support service runs 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. All calls are one-on-one with a trained mental health professional and completely confidential. In addition to that, Lifeline Australia provides a free, confidential, and anonymous 24-hour telephone counseling service for adults needing emotional support. They have a range of information and resources available from their website about providing care in times of crisis. Their support line is 131114. This is by no means an exhaustive list of all mental health services within Australia, but I do hope you find one that best works for you. Thank you for listening. Say the Podcast is self-produced and hosted by myself, Dalise. You can follow the show on Instagram at Say the Podcast. We'll be featuring special illustrations made by incredible artists for every episode. You don't want to miss out on that. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe. You can find Say the Podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Wooshka, Acast, and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, bye for now.